chat with Nicholas. He'll listen to you. Then he'll laugh, and then he'll cry with you. It's all in a safe space for you to speak your truth. Oh, come and share with me. Hi, everyone. We've got an exciting guest with us today, Kim Rosdeba, and he is an author, a brand guru. He's worked with Fortune 500 companies around the world, worked with millions of dollars in advertising. But tonight we're going to be focusing on his book, which uh, talks about branding queens. And I'm very excited about uh, hearing a little bit about your history, but also some of the fascinating characters uh, in your book, Kim. So welcome. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. I enjoy being here. I first ask, where in the world are you? So I'm located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is just off of the Rocky Mountains. We're the second province in from the Pacific Ocean. So it's rocky. And then on the other side of me is the prairies. So it's flat and agricultural land. Is there much snow in the winter for you folks? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, we have temperatures ranging from plus 30 to minus 30. We've just come out of summer here in Norway. So we had a nice 25 to 27 degrees, but it's starting to cool down now. And I'm looking forward to skiing and doing some cross-country skiing. So that's a, a favorite pastime of mine. Now, you're our first Canadian, which is great because we've just had a whole bunch of Americans but from, you know, from coast to coast, very happy to broaden our horizons a little bit. Canadians now, are more friendlier than Americans. I, I'm, I'm told so. So we'll see as the interview continues how true that is. So Kim, let's just go a little bit into your background. So who are you? What's your educational background? How did you get to work on large campaigns, large advertising budgets, and on Fortune 500 companies? Let me start. I actually... Before I actually went into university, I took a year off and traveled throughout Europe. I'm probably going to age myself because I was traveling on $10 a day. It's impossible today. I think you can't even do an hour for $10 today. But from that, I actually came back with an understanding of really wanting to understand people. So I went to university. I took a, a business degree. Uh, economics was really the, the foundation when I was going to university. Now there's more marketing, uh, more communication roles and opportunities for education. But when I was going, it was economics was sort of the foundation that I took. And then I went from there into sales. I worked for a company, a petroleum company. I looked after 10 retail gasoline stations. It was a large Canadian retail company. And from there, I actually started understanding marketing and I was in marketing for a number of years. I really enjoyed it, but what I really, really liked was strategy. And so I always sat in the you know, rooms and meetings with the advertising agency and going, they're doing some really incredible things. They have to think all the different elements and, the, and they're the connection to the customer. So I jumped ship. And went to an advertising agency and I was in advertising for about 15 years. And then I decided that I needed to go back to the client side because I was getting tired of just taking orders and, you know, filling in all the gaps, all the deficiencies of my clients. And I really wanted to have now total control. So I went back uh, to client side and that's uh, when I started uh, working with the five and I've been actually for 22 years now 
working with Fortune 500 companies and being able to drive that brand strategy. And it's, to me, it's a wonderful place to be because brand is everywhere in an organization. Yeah, so I think coming from an economics background, you have a slightly different viewpoint on brands and brand value. And as you mentioned, brand sort of cascades throughout the, the entire organization from leadership all the way down to your to the supplier level as well. One of the areas in, in brand strategy that I've been focusing on quite a lot now is stakeholder engagement and especially ESG and sustainability communications. And that forms a very strong part now, I think sort of the next step in in brand strategies that focus on sustainability and what it means for a business. And I'm sure coming from, you know, petroleum industry, you know, you know quite a lot about that and activities, the good activities that are actually being done behind the scenes with these companies. Yeah, it's, it used to be an added feature to a brand. Today, it is now front and center, particularly if you're talking to a younger demographic, I mean, if you keep seeing all the research that's coming out on the importance, and not only for Gen Z, but even for millennials, is the importance of sustainability and DEI. So all of this is a combination of of a caring brand and a brand that that you know is purposeful. So these are words that you know when I started, we never used. You know, we never used this. We talked about you know we talked about benefits. We talked about attributes. We talked about emotional, you know, a, a, a attraction and, you know, the cool factors and coolness, but we never talked about, you know, sustainability and DNI purpose. Yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, there's this very interesting factor of both millennials and Gen Z and various different target markets taking sustainability seriously. I mean, I've got uh, two young boys and we buy shoes every two months, basically. And all of the Adidas, Nike, Reebok, etc. the first thing on the box and the, as you open the shoe, this is made out of 70% recycled, whatever it is. So they're really putting the money where their mouth is. And they obviously see that it's important for this particular yeah. generation. But that aside, interestingly, I've uh, also done the hop between client side and agency side. So I've worked with JWT when it was still JWT, with Interbrand, with MTV, with Nando's, with a couple of different brands. And the experience from being a client before you've been to an agency is very different to when you come back from an agency. You sort of know all the inside, insider tricks. Yes. I always said to my agency, I'm going to be your best client and your nightmare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kim, let's talk about this book of yours, Branding Queens. I see it's a finalist for the 2022 Forward Indies uh, Book of the Year Awards and a semi-finalist for the 2022 Book Life Prize in Nonfiction. So hopefully you're going to get a couple more awards over, over the next uh, year or two. But maybe talk to me about what spurred you on to, to write this book and particularly about Branding Queens. Okay. So it's about 20 entrepreneurial women who built epic brands. And it started off when I, I live in a country that's bilingual, but I really, unfortunately, only know English. And there was a day I discovered 
that Vive Clicquot, the champagne. And Vive, I didn't understand what it was. It just sounded really good. Yeah. Until somebody told me it was Widow. And I go, Widow Clicquot is on a champagne bottle as a brand. And I go, why? And so that started my pursuit is to say, first of all, I didn't know Clicquot was a brand that was built by a woman back in 1810 is one of the largest champagne brands in the world. And so I started pursuing and understanding how did this happen? And then I'm not going to tell you why the widow is on the brand. You're going to have to read the yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> but the next question was, are there other women out there that have built iconic brands that I'm not aware of? And that was my pursuit. It took me three years. I started it actually as a blog. I thought, you know, I was going to write a blog about Dietrichol. And as I said, I started just, you know, going down this rabbit hole and trying to find, and I found 20 women. And it goes back 200 years to up to about 20 years. Narrowing it down to 20 is, is quite a tough job, I reckon. So how did you manage to whittle out the good, you know, the good one, not the good ones from the bad ones, but how did you manage to whittle out the selection that you did, because I love your titles. So you've got, what did you have? You've got a queen for every chapter. Yes. So you've got a uh, queen of green, queen of PR, queen of England. I mean, that, that's a great one. So th these names actually came naturally. As I started looking in, they were references by media, calling them actually these different queens. So that was the easy part. That was actually really the easy part. It, and I had a uh, working title for a number of years. The queen never actually even came into my head until as I started putting it together and going, there's what's the commonality in all of these? They are, they are all, you know, top of their game. And that's one of the, the, I don't know if it's a secret, but it's one of their attributes that they all have is they are top of their game of what they're, and, and again, some of them defined the game. Yeah. In a lot of cases, they defined it. I, the thing that was interesting about all of these women was that they started off with absolutely no idea what they were actually trying to achieve. They did. One of the common elements was that they all cared and they all, in most cases, were talking to themselves and when they were putting out what they were trying to solve a problem of some sort that they had that they understood other women probably would gravitate towards. Let's have a look at some of the characters that you're looking at. So I see there's Coco Chanel, let's see, Estee Lauder, Tory Burch, Sarah Blakely. Something that I've noticed when I had a look through your list and I've had a, a separate look at some at female entrepreneurs is if one looks at Coco Chanel and one looks at Oprah, for example, they've all gone through some kind of suffering. And it seems that suffering has helped, you know, spur on their careers as well. These weren't necessarily pampered women who just had everything landed on their lap. And there's been this struggle story for all of them, not being trusted or not being given opportunities, not um, having the financial wherewithal or having personal tragedy as well. And I think that's something that folks would see as they uh, go through your book as well. Yeah, that's true. Quite a few of them start absolutely nothing except their own belief in themselves. And they had no real experience. 
to build a brand, to even build a, a product. And even the ones that actually did have some education or did have some money, I'll, I'll go with Barbara Nicole Clicot. I mean, she was quite well off, but she didn't really have to do this. Back in 1810, the only reason she was able to do it because she was a widow and there was a loophole in the, in, in the law that allowed her to continue the business that her husband and her had started, but she didn't have to. So there was a driven aspect to all of these women, whether you had money or not. And even if they had money, no one was going to invest in them because yeah. they didn't believe what they, what they were trying to do would be something that would be worthy of investing in. So they had to believe in themselves. They had to take risks. And in many cases, they didn't even realize they were taking risks. And the other aspect to it that I think is, I think we could all learn from is they had to learn everything. So they were an open mind. They didn't come in saying, I know how to do this. They came in saying, how am I going to do this? So they collected people around them that helped them. Were they easy people to work with? I think it would be a challenge to work with many of They're perfectionists. And if you work with a perfectionist, it's really hard because the expectations of you is really high. So they have loyal. What's really interesting is, you know, and you hear some stories of, you know, working with Oprah, Martha Stewart, I've heard stories of, you know, people going, she's very difficult to work with. But yeah, because their expectations are extremely high but they have extremely loyal people that understand the vision. They're with them, you know, from day one. So I don't want to make this an episode about Verve Clicquot, but I've got, you know, one of my favorite sayings is from Madame Clicquot, which is, when is the best time to drink champagne? And it's, I drink it when I'm happy. I drink it when I'm sad. I drink it when I'm alone. I drink it when I'm in company. And I try and live by that as well. So champagne or I, I prefer South African, the equivalent of champagne, but that's my favorite tipple. So I want to talk about the five C's, which I think in terms of the consistent thread that goes through your book, you talk about the five C's and that this seems to be one of the reasons, one of the key processes that all of these individuals go through to, to create yeah. their entrepreneurial journeys and their brands. So let's maybe talk through some of these five C's. If I can just name them, it's commitment, construct, community, content, and obviously consistency. Yeah. I had to have some sort of framework, or at least I thought it was important to have a framework. So I, my original intent was to say, you know, did they succeed in all five? Is there, you know, one that did a better job with one seed over the another one? And at the end of the day, they, to be a successful and iconic brand, you got to succeed in all five. That's, there's no question you do. Yeah. So there's degrees of, you know, a success on each one for sure, but you cannot survive without the five C's. So to me, it was a way of being able to take something very complex, which is brand which is a brand and try and simplify it down. Each one, you can go really deep uh, into each of the C's uh, very quickly. Yeah. 
So I think if we look at commitment, you've touched on commitment where the, they were quite singularly focused on, on building their business and their quest for perfectionism. In terms of the constructs, that one I'd maybe go into a little sure. bit of detail. So this is the, this is the visual aspect of a brand. It's the logo, it's the color palette, it's the tonality, it's, you know, the color palette, the decor. All the touch points of, you know, the five senses, you know, so if it's, you know, something like a perfume, then that becomes really important. I have a great story or an example of utilizing scent, which is Estee Lauder. And she would run around the store and not spray, but she would pour the fragrance that she had that she was, you know, trying to sell on the main floor. You know, this was a, again, a, a way of using your construct, using some of the aspects of your brand. I mean, scent is a really interesting one. A number of brands today use scent. We're not aware of it, but if you actually go in with your nose first, you can understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. Martin Lindstrom has that wonderful book, Brand Sense. Yes. And, you know, I've used that, that concept in with quite a few brands and the importance of, I think it's examples like Singapore airlines, when you walk in that, you know, there's that waft of a specific Singapore airlines fragrance. When you walk into a Hilton hotel or into specific environments, there is this fragrance that permeates the room and sensory branding it, people forget about the other senses other than sight and sound. There's the taste, the touch, you know, what type of quality paper and leather, et cetera, use the sound and smell is one of the most uh, evocative senses because it really can take us back to grand, to your grandmother's kitchen, yes. baking cookies yes. or to a, a first love, the smell of a, an ocean. And if you don't use all of these sensory cues, you're missing out on a very important way to connect emotionally with your customer. I know you you enjoy wine. I enjoy wine and without being able to smell, it would be very disappointing. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I got COVID and I lost my sense of smell completely. Oh. So it is absolutely gone. So now I just have to drink more wine to get the, you know, the flavors slightly deeper at the back of my throat. Community is another aspect, and you spoke about how these entrepreneurs built supporters around them. And I think for any new entrepreneur, the focus should be on building networks and community. We've seen through COVID that people have, are working at home, they are doing lots of Zoom meetings, and with the advent of social media, Lots of folks are just thinking that you can send out Facebook posts, links in LinkedIn posts, Instagram posts, and that's your community. But it's not that, is it? No, it's much bigger than that. I mean, having somebody advocate for you is particularly whoever the person is. If this person has a huge following or has huge respect in a community, and particularly in the community that you're trying to influence, wow. That is so powerful to have, you know, a recommendation from somebody that is somebody, Oprah Winfrey. If you got a recommendation from Oprah, your product went flying off the shelves instantly. Yeah. I mean, that's way out there, but starting closer to home, you should start understanding who are the influencers in your topic, in your 
domain? What's the solution that you're trying to solve with your product or service? And then find out who are the influencers? Who are the ones that are out there talking about it? And generally these people are looking forward. I mean, if you're trying to help the cause, they're there to help you. Yeah. What I have noticed as well, when you see these outliers like Coco Chanel and the likes of Oprah, is that they don't operate in a vacuum. They didn't become great by themselves. And the same thing uh, as in World War II, where you had this collection of amazing leaders all at the same time, they sort of grew up together in the same milieu and uh, um, in the same circles and groups. I think when one looks at Coco Chanel and you look at the artistic circle that she was involved in, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily in fashion, but they were in music, they were in dance, drama, um, stage building, etc., music. And it's important to also expand out of your direct comfort zone and meet with other leaders in their various spheres to absorb some of their energy, absorb some of the thinking that they've got to take your brand forward. Yeah. I'm going to use an example of Margaret Redkin. So this is Pepperidge Farms. Uh, and she started off with making bread and she made bread, again, whole wheat. This is going back uh, to in the 40s. We're starting to see processed food coming in. This was the hot trend was processed food. And it was a doctor that her son had allergies and he said, you know, possibly some of the additives and, you know, the white flour could be having an effect on him. See if you can get, you know, stone ground wheat, whole wheat, and make your own bread and see if that helps. And she did, and it seemed to help. And so the story goes, she started making bread and started selling it, but she started actually going to doctors. And that's how she started selling it because it was an influencing group a doctor going to recommend your product, particular, and again, health food, natural foods. This was not a topic that was discussed or people were aware of yeah. back in those days. I mean, you can start building it through, you know, context with directly with your product, but she also understood the media and she made sure she made relationships with media reporters and journalists. And she always sent them product before any, and uh, I'll use the same thing with uh, um, uh, Debbie Fields and Mrs. Fields cookies. Before she ever met some uh, media person, she always sent them cookies. Uh, so they, they understood the product. Yeah. So I notice the last one that we'll talk about is consistency and obviously you as a brand man, consistency should be stamped on our heads almost. So maybe talk to consistency and how that was, that's a golden thread that, that runs through quite a lot of these stories. Yeah. One of the questions I get from some people is which one, which sees the most important? And I go, oh, they're all important. But without this one, a brand will not be sustainable. Absolutely will not be sustainable because I'm going to use um, Oprah Winfrey because Oprah Winfrey always said she was not a brand. She says, I'm a person, I'm not a brand. Until one day she discovered that what's important for a brand is consistency. And she goes, I am consistent. I'm consistent all the time. That's what I deliver is consistency. 
And so she actually admitted that she's a brand because she is so consistent in what she delivers. But to do that as a person, that's easy because you're quality control every day. You do that with a big organization that's global. How do you do that? How does Starbucks deliver the same product anywhere you are in the world? There has to be a whole bunch of stuff behind it. Everything from your supplier network of them understanding exactly what they have to deliver to you when and where to how your employees have to react and act every day and prevent, you know, producing that product consistently. And then all yeah. that other, and this, you know, infrastructure that's around it, all the governance that's around it. And we're full of data today. I mean, that's, there's no problem with data. Now it's, what do you do with it? And, you know, what's the most important element to this to make sure that you are consistent also ahead of the game because things keep changing your clients, your customers. I mean, you brought up ESG. I mean, ESG was not a topic five years ago, eight years ago. So we have to shift, right? And how does this, how does a company stay? How does a brand stay ahead of all of this? So consistency, I think is really probably the most important C of all of them. But you bring up an interesting point there in terms of consistency doesn't necessarily mean staying static or staying rock-like. If we look at Madonna, if we look at, you made the example of Martha Stewart. I mean, she's had a bit of a renaissance as well. And a lot of these brands that you've looked at or entrepreneurs that you've looked at have had to adapt through time. And I think that's quite a, a difficult, it's a difficult process because you want consistency. And this is where brand stretch comes in. How much of your personality allows you to stretch into new areas or move with the times? Yeah. And that really starts with your vision, because if your vision is really narrow, in a lot of cases, when a brand does start, it is very narrow. You know, if you, if you put tire in your name, you're a tire company, but you eventually become, that's not enough. You want to do mufflers. You want to do other things. So you're going to have to make sure that, you know, rebalance the brand. And, and I've seen this, right? You've seen this with a lot of different brands that are out there where they take off, you know, a descriptor as well. But understanding that vision becomes really important because your vision's got to be much bigger than just a perfume. I mean, Elizabeth Arden, I loved her positioning was what I sell is hope. That you can take a number of different ways yeah. in developing that brand. And so it can evolve. You know, same thing you could use, look at Apple. You know, it started off as a computer, as a product. So you've got to have first the gut, have the big vision, and then allows you to move within there. Because if that's what people understand you're trying to do, then the products themselves can change. And Absolutely. I think you're bringing vision back to the forefront is very important and it gives you that flexibility. So talking about this is a product uh, giving hope does allow you to stretch and maintain your relevance over time. To my grandmothers, mother, teachers, mother-in-law, sister, wife, and daughters, I see you put a very lovely dedication there. How important, it's a stupid question I know, but how important or 
what lessons have you learned from your, I mean, you talk about your grandmothers, which is lovely, your, uh, your grandmothers, mothers, teachers, etc. How have they sort of shaped you or how important have they been in you writing this book? So these are all the women that, that I learned from. My mother was an Avon salesperson. So Mary Kay, if you, Mary Kay is one of the women in there that had a team of women selling Mary Kay products, cosmetics. Avon was a competitor out there. And I remember my mother and my sister and I would be, we were uh, six, seven, and she would be delivering her products. And this was her first real job. Like she was making money outside that she was at home all the time. And I remember sort of seeing her, how proud she was and being able to go in, she'd dress up. We'd be in the car cause there was no, you know, babysitters. So we were in the car entertaining ourselves as she would go in and drop off her products. I remember that. I remember her, how she felt that she was now contributing to the family. That's an important memory that I have of her. And I, and since then she went on to become a credit manager. She went on in business successfully. She worked with my father and, and their own business. She was part owner of this business. And so that's one of, of the people that influenced me in school. Same thing. Most of my teachers were women. And again, I have some fond memories of an environment that is not necessarily very positive in developing women in a business environment still today. And I see how they persevere and I see the, not only the people that I have worked with, um, directly, particularly the ones that are in, that I identified in my own personal life, but there's a correlation between that and the 20 women. They all had to persevere to succeed. I want one last story and it needs to be about one of your grandmothers. So I don't know if you can go back into the memory banks and think about a wonderful story about one of your grannies as you know, I would call them. Okay. Uh, so I had two, of course, one who passed away when I was quite young. She was actually quite young, but I still remember her. She was a cleaning. She worked in a, she cleaned a school. And I remember still as a kid, I was in my teens and she would come home and she was proud what she did. I look back and go, oh, she was a cleaning person, but that's not how she saw herself. She saw herself at a school. I wish probably she had more education herself, but she was there to make the place livable and to help. And so when she looked at the big picture, she looked at the big picture that she's helping all of these kids get an education, that they're going to be in an environment that is clean, that will be conducive for education. She didn't look at it as that she was a cleaning person. No, she looked at it. And as I said, the big picture. So I take that and it's helped me look at things in a bigger perspective than just a very isolated. For me, it's about celebrating not only the big entrepreneurs, the ones who have got their names in lights, 
but it's all of these wonderful women who have uh, helped us uh, develop into the men that we are, because I think they, they do help us become men. And I'm sure you've got lots more stories about a lot of the women in your life. And I can, you know, rail on about how wonderful my grand grandmothers are as well. But I have start having having to wave tears from my eyes if I think about my grand. Kim, it's been such a treat speaking to you. And I'll put the links so folks can go and have a look at your book and buy it. And I hope to see the update of the next 20 queens or whatever your next endeavor is going to be. Actually, the next one I'm working on is on the five C's. Okay. So I'm, it's more academic because as I developed the first one, I started the five C's and oh yeah, it's about halfway through. So hopefully that'll come out end of this year or next year. I'm going to put some pressure on you because uh, I need to have you back on again. So when you have uh, that book ready, come and chat to us and we can go into some more details. Absolutely. Kim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm, come chat with Nicholas. He'll listen to you. Then he'll laugh and then he'll cry with you. It's all in a safe space for you to speak your truth. Oh.